0: I'm Abby Newsham, and you are listening to UpZone. Hey everyone, thanks for listening to another episode of UpZone, a show where we take a big story each week that touches the strong towns conversation and we upzone it. We talk about it in depth. I'm Abby, a planner at Multi Studio in Kansas City. And today I am joined by Aaron Lubeck, who is the Development Director at Southern Urbanism and also a restoration contractor and builder. Aaron, welcome. Thank you for joining us. Uh, Thanks for having me. I love the podcast
1: and I'm thrilled to be invited.
0: I was trying to put together, you know, thinking about how to introduce you. And I feel like you have many different hats and titles. So I I hope I got the, the most important ones.
1: You did. Yeah. I, at the end of the day, my, my root skill is as a designer and builder. And I've been in near downtown Durham for about 20 years, ran a restoration contracting company that did pretty much exclusively historic restoration projects for 10 years and shifted over the last 10 years as I've got more engaged with the new urbanist movement, uh, towards new urban infill land planning and design. And that's kind of allowed me to, to write a book about it, teach it at Duke and start Southern Urbanism, which is designed to
0: curate these conversations even farther. And this year at CNU, you had the, I want to say it was the second edition of Southern Urbanism that you were able to share with folks?
1: We did, yeah. So Southern Urbanism uh, is a nonprofit media company that started, for a lot of reasons, the model was based largely off of Sightlines Institute, which is a really admirable 30-year-old group out of Seattle, that is um, kind of curating all of the good conversations on fixing our cities, making more equitable, sustainable region uh, in the Pacific Northwest. And when we looked at it, the the South, which the rest of the world doesn't want to admit, but it's now the most populated region of the country with 140 million people, really has nothing like that. Uh, There's not a place where people who are trying to do better, who want to build better, who are frustrated with the way we're building cities, can discuss those conversations, not only broadly, but with people who are doing the work. And so we've been really focused on voicing the practitioner, who as you know, it's a voice that's largely suppressed in public discourse. And so for people who are kind of looking for the true stories of what works and what doesn't work from the people who are doing it, um, our goal has been to curate those. And so um, we've been really proud of the two magazines we put out, the relationships we've developed. with universities, with CNU and are, you know,
0: looking forward to continuing the work. Yeah, it's an incredibly high quality content based on what I saw when you had your the copy at CNU. And it sounds like it's definitely needed because the South is one of those areas of the country that just has some of the best urbanism and some of the worst urbanism, you know, in different places. So it's great that you've developed that and there's many opportunities for you know incremental development and kind of reviving towns and cities now that the population has boomed so much at the same time there's a lot of you know major investment and boom going on in some of your larger cities so it's it's a really interesting region and you have great weather which I'm very jealous about that's kind of my thing i hate the cold so <laughs>
1: Well, when people come here, they don't tend to go back. And so I think that it's, I mean, it's the world's biggest sprawl repair exercise. Um, I believe it's the last region of the developed world to urbanize. of uh, Our cities like Durham were kind of not urban until 20 years ago. They had a core, you know, that was 100 years old, but it kind of existed mostly as a trading ground for the tobacco industry that, you know, existed largely for two weekends a year or a month or two a year. And if we were an agrarian rural area, so this is very new uh, that we're urbanizing now. And it's really fascinating because the, the analogy I've used is that, the, you know, America's most iconic urbanism, particularly in the Northeast and the Midwest, was built all before zoning. And that's that's relevant. The West Coast cities were built after zoning, but pre-environmental movements, things like stormwaters and open space and tree saves. And there's definitely a place where there's no question about that. But the South is being built after both of those realities. And it's not to say that there's not a place for them, but uh, the analogy that I would use is if New York was built today, just to park the office space of Midtown Manhattan would require all of Manhattan, 22 square miles, a surface park, of course. And then everything north of Chelsea would be so encumbered by stream buffers that it would be almost unbuildable. So it's just a reality that we're existing in. It's not necessarily wrong. It's just this is a very different encumbrances to build the South than Kansas City, Chicago, New York or San Francisco had.
0: Yeah. Yeah. We're in a very different time and planning movement. It'll be fascinating to see how that kind of layers on what was existing in the South as we see outcomes 20 years from now. So the article that we're covering is actually about the South. Uh, This was published in Indy Week as an op-ed by Bob Chapman, and it is entitled, The Purpose of Zoning is to Prevent Affordable Housing. So this is in, it's basically a proclamation of support for what's called the SCAD text amendments being proposed in Durham, North Carolina. SCAD stands for Simplifying Codes for Affordable Development. These are basically tactical changes to the current development code that are focusing on small scale changes that will allow small lot housing, neighborhood retail, mixed use development and missing middle housing types. The author talks about the history of zoning and how changes in the world like the assassination of Dr. Martin Luther King and the passing of the Fair Housing Act brought on new and more pervasive methods of housing discrimination nestled within our zoning codes which most people don't read on a daily basis so regulatory changes like downzoning have enabled racial and class segregation and that has persisted for generations across the United States and rules like density maximums and parking mandates and complex permitting regulations basically are now and have been hindering the ability for the Black community's traditional urban neighborhoods to rebuild themselves. The SCAT amendments are now basically the center of intense local and even beyond local debate. And Erin Lubeck, who has been intimately involved in the process of developing these recommendations and is a major proponent of the amendments, has agreed to dig into these a little bit with me. So, Aaron, I've, I really appreciate that. Did I leave anything out? Can you tell me more about what kind of initiated this effort?
1: Sure. There's a lot, a lot of stuff to go through there, but I think some of this does root in the long-running frustrations that cities are just not equitable places to build. Every stack of rules is, is uh, designed to sort of favor people with money, to, uh, to uh, discourage or even eliminate people with less wealth. And, you know, in most cities you look at America, particularly the, the more progressive ones, it correlates with that. On any project, there's probably five reasons you can't do it. So the reality when you're talking about entitlement, you need all the switches to be up or you can't do it. So you could fix four of the five problems and you still can't do it. Right. And so, you know, those are typical. Eric Kronberg's been so good at identifying those because 80 percent of them are the same in every city. It's parking mandates, which are ruinous, walkable urbanism. It's uh, density standards, which were really used in a racist way in Durham in the late 60s. It's lot dimensional standards, Uh, single family zoning and usually procedurals as well. So if you start with that, you realize that there's none of these are actually necessarily that technical to, to fix. You can go through your code and recognize what these are. And Durham did actually do an extraordinary job fixing a couple of these in 2019. Uh, so under the direction of then Mayor Steve Schul, uh, who has uh, sort of a long history of activism and actually started the independent paper that you just mentioned back in the 80s, uh, the Council Eliminated Single-Family Zoning, May have been the first city in the South to do that. If not, it's obviously one of the first ones in the country and also implemented a really innovative small lot code, which I write about southern urbanism. This issue that frankly, other cities should be duplicating. Durham is absolutely booming. We've had in the middle of a pandemic, a Google, Apple, and Facebook uh, offices announced in a town of 250,000 people. So people are coming here, really tight markets, and we need to build the small lot code introduced uh, 2,000-square-foot lots down from a sort of southern standard 5,000-square-foot minimum, but contingent on those homes being 1,200 square feet or smaller. And while we knew that would have some interest, um, it's actually in just three years. That's now the majority of the detached housing built in urban Durham, are uh, so it changed that quickly. and, and builders have, have had to relearn and designers, for so that matter, have had to relearn how to design and build homes at this scale because you know nobody's done it for a generation, maybe two generations. And so it's been interesting to see that learning process. you know there's definitely some that are not gorgeous. There's some that really are gorgeous. and it's a it's like markets are supposed to work. We think the good ones will get duplicated and the, you know, the bad ones won't. And so SCAD came out of partially to, uh, a learnings from expanding housing choices with any reform. As you know, Abby, urbanism is messy. There is no there's no right answer, as uh, housing oppositional folks will always say, we need to get this right. There is no right answer. It's messy. There's gradients and there's trade-offs and so forth. And so with expanding housing choices, there were, uh, there were learnings. There were some things that worked and some things that didn't. Um, and so... This started largely as a, as a need to clean up things that weren't working. Um, that was combined with uh, working with an ever-dwindling body of those building affordable housing in Durham who really want to build affordable housing, understanding the problems that people were running into. And so this started as an inquiry with our small practitioners. It's a really good, really talented, uh, well-meaning group that uh, you know, wants to do good things in Durham and you, you just ask them three questions it's like what's, what's preventing you from building more housing and then you shut up and listen. What's preventing you from building uh, better housing? You know, What's preventing you from building more affordable housing? And if you interview and go, and this is really what planning should be, it's these interviews with people on the front lines uh, who know this information because they suffer <laughs> it, right? Then you get, you start to hear the same answers. And that was aggregated and brought to staff and had, you know, a pretty overwhelming buy in, not exclusively. We have, we have really good planning staff here. Definitely uh, detailed questions and, and uh, you know, a critical review of it. But in general, the vast majority of these reforms are uncontroversial technical cleanup. And those are pretty easy to get buy in from from the city and staff.
0: So, where do you think the major pushback is coming from? Is it because I mean I, I'm guessing there there's so many different little changes. I mean it is really like a technical kind of surgical amendment. I'm guessing without knowing in detail that there's probably like a handful of of primary issues that people are clamoring to
1: uh, sure. I would say even outside of the issues, as this amendment's gone on to 18 months, and it's actually supposed to vote August 21st, it's less issues and more people. So every, that's the five people who show up and protest everything. Uh, Alex, Alex Baca over at Greater Greater Washington refers to them as recreationally anti, like some people play tennis for fun, other people show up and protest housing. And we certainly have that group, and they, uh, it's interesting because it's as the MB movement has sort of accelerated, and the, the anti housing groups that have so dominated public discourse since the 60s and 70s have lost power. You realize that it's not even necessarily about having a duplex in the neighborhood, it's kind of about uh, control and about a uh, control. That these groups have had over public discourse for decades, and as they see that grip loosening, they become pretty nasty. And so, I actually think their their objections are less to do with the amendment and more to do with that um, they're they're used to controlling everything, and they're, they're kind of not. That's a national problem. So, the technical things that are we think uh, that that are bigger and more transformative in the amendment. Um, and I don't even think they're necessarily controversial, but they're, they're potentially could do really good things in Durham. One is this, this eliminates parking mandates completely. Um, technically, staff wanted to keep in maximums. So if Walmart comes to town and wants to do a 1,000 spaces, they can tell them no. Uh, and we were fine with that. This, and we'd be the seventh largest municipality in the country to do that, following Richmond and Raleigh, who did it just recently. This introduces faith based housing back to the marketplace, which is a whole thing to get into. Um, But remarkably uh, dead market because it's been banned. Just technocratic zoning and monolithic single use zoning basically zoned uh, church housing out of existence. You can't, a church, which in the South usually has tons of land, most have like acres of land, where, where their ability to build a village or supportive housing for themselves, or for affordable housing, or seniors, or refugees, or anybody, was eliminated. It was zoned out of existence. So that, that, those rights are restored. The ability to build neighborhood commercial, and to be clear on this, I would separate, this is not a coffee shop in your residential neighborhood, which Raleigh tried to do uh, not too long ago. This is just that Portland has all these neighborhood, you know, you go to the corner, you're never more than four blocks from like a little corner. That has a restaurant, a bar, and some retail. Uh, those were also zoned out of existence in Durham for the last 50 years. And so those are reestablished too. And then the ability did some really in, in innovative work with reestablishing uh, the rights and ability of local practitioners to build affordable housing um, wasn't necessarily zoned out of existence, but has been functionally. Uh, eliminated as the affordable housing markets went from primarily uh, privately produced as they were up to 20 years ago for kind of all of humanity's existence to the public domain. And so we've got great builders here like Topher Thomas, a uh, young immigrant builder, which we wrote about in the first Southern Urbanism issue, who is a teacher turned small home builder, and he wants to do nothing but affordable housing he's sort of hamstrung at every step of the way this allows paths to build more small scale incremental uh, affordability so those are the big things that are transformative and uh, mostly for the people who dig into it sincerely and love love Durham and are genuinely curious about making Durham better I think we found overwhelming support the few people who object to it are sort of usual people who object to everything and the people who
0: I get to. It's ironic that faith-based housing was something that had to be addressed. I hadn't thought about that before because typically religious institutions have quite a bit of, you know, leniency and, and zoning codes for, for the religious practice, but the housing practice or home building is a little bit different, although it, it makes a lot of sense for a religious organization or nonprofit that isn't necessarily building as a commodity or to make profit, to be a builder of housing and to contribute to the overall market in that way.
1: Uh, it's been, it's been amazing. So Thomas Dougherty, who's a real, he wrote the American Alley. And is one of the great, Oh
0: yeah. Programs.
1: he was brought down uh, to lead a charrette, which multiple churches participated in. We kind of locally fundraised for it. Interest at Duke helped pay for it, self help, which is a non profit bank, helped underwrite it. And then we had four local architects donate their time to just draw site plans based upon this proposed code for actual churches with actual sites. And it was just an amazing event, really bootstrapped just to explore what could this be. And we were really amazed because, one, when, you know, if, if I just had to guess, I was like, gosh, there's there's 550 faith parcels, I know that I guess it, in Durham, about two and a quarter square miles. And my, my suspicion was, if you talk to churches about whether they're interested in building housing, you know, I don't know, maybe 20% or 30 might be interested. And I'm pretty good at filtering tire kickers. Pretty much everybody we talked to was like, absolutely. No, we, we talk about that. We're interested in affordable housing. We want to get back. We have this mission. We know this is an issue in Durham. We want to be part of the solution. It was overwhelming how many people were interested in it. The other thing that was super interesting is that what people think of when they think of affordable housing is really uh, skewed. Um, they, there's truly the belief in America that affordable housing has to be ugly. It's just it's ingrained with us now. And so a couple of the churches that had gone further down this line uh, already had this imagining in their head like a garden apartment with a huge surface parking lot, because that's what tech affordable housing projects are. And they, didn't, they didn't know that you could do something different. And Thomas Dowdy in particular, who designed uh, for a Methodist church here, designed village housing that looked like something out of Bruges, Belgium, that had no huge surface parking lot, or had less runoff, more green space, more community space, was absolutely like would be one of the coolest developments in Durham and would probably cost less to build than the crappy garden apartment. It was mind blowing. I mean the what came out of the, the charrette was truly mind blowing and it's actually had we've had faith based leaders from across the country now saying we're watching Durham because this is this has implications beyond Durham. This could be something that really radically Uh, helps the affordable housing issues across the country very quickly.
0: Yeah. When people often think about affordable housing, you say LIHTC, but I think about like capital A institutional affordable housing, which has, it's like a piece of the puzzle, but we can't just have institutional housing and then, you know, luxury market rate housing that you need attorneys and a bunch of specialists to get through the process in order to build and what i think the code amendments that you're proposing are are doing is effectively enabling more incremental development, more starter homes. I mean, small lot housing is a is a big opportunity for starter homes just to build smaller, smaller format housing and you obviously need to build a building culture that is able to do that work, but it's it's kind of occurred to me that we have organizations that really focus on small business development, building capacity, addressing regulatory barriers for small businesses, but small developers are a type of entrepreneur that I think doesn't really get a lot of focus and is so impactful to the housing market and to uh, just the overall like ability for people to thrive in our country.
1: You're totally correct and so I think the way you described it was, was beautiful you were talking about small homes and small lots but we should be talking about small builders and so, so so much of my work is assisting that class I've been that when I started in this industry I didn't have a pot to piss in I did not grow up wealthy and uh, I know this is a capital intensive industry and it is possible to enter uh, without being a trust fund kid uh, but we also know that We know the writing on the wall for cities who got this wrong. Like if you lived in San Francisco and loved San Francisco and wanted to build your city, you can't start uh, if you're just a a young kid with hustle to go build a duplex. And that's a really dangerous place to be. Uh, And so, you know, we need to defend and create paths for young kids coming out of high school, coming out of micro jobs type, you know, blue collar training. Where can they go build? These are real questions we should ask. We've got the great uh, construction, and architect, uh, construction and management program at Southern High School. We've got Durham Tech has construction training. NC Central just started a real estate training program. Duke students just started an urban studies initiative program. And so here's the real question. Where does a 22-year-old kid who falls in love with Durham, who wants to build Durham, what's their path? Where are the lots they can build on? How hard is it for them to build? And if, those, if, the, if you run into roadblocks there, it's a, it's a policy question. And it's not unsolvable, um, but we need to defend that right of entry. Otherwise, you know, you start removing rungs at the bottom of the ladder, and they're much easier to keep than to put back.
0: Well, and then the outcomes that you get are, you know, people broadly lamenting that, why, do, why are we just getting luxury, large-scale development? and it's because the the ability to do i would say modest or incremental development has been removed from the equation because you have to consider the risk the barrier to entry and the risk that's involved and whether it is a viable path for people who are not really trying to get into corporate real estate development but they love old buildings and they want to renovate buildings or they love their neighborhood and they'd love to build a duplex or build something small, do kind of the next small iterative thing. And, and, you know, I think you would think that from a public engagement perspective or acceptance perspective that people would be a lot more accepting of that approach but, you know, as you're seeing that you you still have pushback even for more iterative change. And, and we see it, too. We we work on a lot of zoning issues, especially like out in the Mountain West and, and this region of the country. And I mean, it is it even even iterative change in some places is unacceptable to a handful of people. Um, do you think that that's something that has become more intense, like, post-COVID? Or is that something that's always kind of been around? I, it's, I think I don't...
1: To, so for me, COVID has not had something to do with it, but I, I would say that it's gotten worse over time. And some of it is intentional. Most of it is not. It is sort of the nature of bureaucracy that powers always expand. And, and, and then there, there, every city has a, a handful of malicious people who are sort of leveraging these realities to make it worse, to prevent housing and sort of a mass democratic power. So that happens first at planning with zoning that, that is just sort of doesn't work either intentionally or not. It's not big, but there is a, there is a body of the planning profession that defends and actually politicians that defends pretextural zoning. Essentially zoning that intentionally does not work. So you have to beg for special permissions, which is where they get you in front of the public square where they can squeeze for a variety of proffers for whatever their special interest is. Sony is a problem with that. Procedural is an issue where uh, in progressive cities, entitlements take, you know, we hear the horror stories of 10 years in San Francisco, in Durham, they've gone from three months to 18 months. Engineers say the average entitlement now is $150,000. I mean, so think about this from a small builder perspective who's who's like transferring from the teaching world to building. And remind. this isn't just a line item expense in your project. This isn't $150,000 that you'll get back one day when you build the thing. This is $150,000 on a craps table. You might not get it back. You can't tell if you're going to run into a planning commissioner or a city councilor who had a bad day or who is going to grandstand on whatever their issue is and squeeze you or or kill your project because of some unrelated issue that has nothing to do with the project. It's a risk. And so the risk, there, there are real thresholds at which, the small builder will not participate. And in, in a progressive cities, uh, that is uh, overwhelmingly uh, well, it's more and more builders won't participate because it's too much risk to do. And that's a really dangerous place to be.
0: Yeah. The, the level of risk that goes into just getting approval to do a project. I think that's why Monty always says, don't do a first project that has any changes to zoning. (laughs) He's allergic to zoning issues, (laughs) but I mean, for a good reason, because you can get caught up and in zoning change, um, debates that could go any way and you might invest $10,000, $20,000 in that process and get denied, and now you can't do your project.
1: And it's one of these things that we see, it's really sad, and was one of the motivations for the SCAT amendment because we hear more and more from friends that they're looking at doing a compromised project that either has bad setbacks or extra runoff that has to be created because of parking mandates or. I'd love to do a garden that's shared, but they can't because they have to park cars. All this dumb stuff that if anybody looked at the site plan would be like, yeah, that's stupid. We shouldn't do that. But they're, they're weighing, this is a real decision making that I think the planning industry and politicians don't understand. The builder has to decide, is this worth the brain damage to go get a variance or a rezoning or a tax amendment or whatever? And increasingly, because it's long, it's expensive, planning is more and more political, increasingly, the decision is, I'm going to build something that's not ideal, That is, I know is less than what I want to do and could be better because it's not worth the brain damage to go get the special permission. And again, that's that's harmful and a good chunk of, actually the majority of SCAD is technical cleanup to avoid those conversations. You know, again, something as simple as getting rid of parking mandates will turn pocket neighborhoods, which are currently a parking lot, <laughs> into a beautiful garden. and uh, that needs to be preserved by right because if the small practitioner has to go beg permission for that, it simply is not going to happen.
0: Yeah, the ability to uh, basically get a building permit for projects that are iterative and additive to a neighborhood, I think, is the key here. Although I think that is where you get a lot of the pushback. You know, people talk about by right. Development, and uh, you know, there are people who want to review every little change to the neighborhood, and it's a very fine balance for you know, communicating and having conversations about as a citizen what level of control should you really have over your neighbor. You know, we're obviously not assessing the plants that people plant in their front yard or (laughs) there's all these things that were, yeah, I guess, unless you're in a homeowners association maybe. Um, but you know, there's every place has a different, I think, culture around how much control we should have over, um, neighbors property based on, I guess, your stake in the neighborhood because it's typically homeowners that are debating these things. Um, I mean, can you talk a little bit about that and how you communicate around these issues of, you know, wanting to have standards that help to manage potential potentially bad impacts of of development while also streamlining development so that things can happen?
1: Yeah, and I think every district is different. And we know I try to contextualize this since cities are different than suburbs. Fundamentally, most of of the problems that we can identify in the CMU Strongtown Southern Urbanism world uh, stem from the fact that we've suburbanized our cities, we've taken concepts that were emphatically suburban, climax condition, you know, monolithic use, parking standards sprawl, uh, the elimination of poor people, the elimination of apartments, and retrofitted them onto a foreign being, uh, which were cities. I mean, so if cities were just allowed to be cities, which are the antithesis of suburbia, which means they're flexible, they're organic, they're entrepreneurial, they're job markets, they're creative, they're incremental, uh, then cities would be able to evolve without all of this rigmarole. Uh, and honestly, I don't think we have the affordable housing crisis that we have because cities are, have always historically for 2,000 years provided when they needed to. Uh, so for me, it's... Um, You're right, that especially in the South, where actually, honestly, a lot of our cities are suburban. I mean, a city like Raleigh, which is a pretty amazing place that has done great things, 80% of that city is suburban in form, which makes reform really difficult. Um, And so I think, you know, finding the paths to uh, actually create relief valves are critical because, you know, our downtown was basically unbuildable for 30 years. We fixed that 20 years ago. It boomed. The more we can build downtown, releases pressure from the neighborhoods. Neighborhoods do have a right to be reasonably protected. You know, if you don't want a ten-story apartment building next to your house, and that's uh, understandable. The issue is when not everything is so tightly frozen. When opportunities to build come up, they're almost like they're they're almost like uh, you know the, the pressure goes to to build them, uh, to build those. We know that you know one of the things in SCAD is restores neighborhood commercial rights. We've got about nine neighborhood commercial districts in Durham that are all functionally dead because you can't, well, not all dead is an exaggeration, but basically not thriving because it's impossible to build a new building there. The most basic (laughs) of basic urban forms, like a one-story commercial building with a diner in it, like simple as can be, has been functionally banned for 50 years. And so we need these relief valves to relieve pressure to, you know, retain The
0: blockable urban neighborhoods that we have. Yeah. So, 50 years plus of regulating and building our way into the current condition. I mean, zoning is obviously not going to change things overnight. It'll probably take 50 plus years to to change our way out of this, even when regulatory standards change. I think a big part of that is probably looking at the building culture and the people who are doing this work once the work can be done. Uh, how is that in Durham? Is, is there a strong culture of smaller scale entrepreneurial builders that, that will leverage this kind of regulatory change?
1: Yeah, there are. Um, and it's, it's interesting because uh, we have a builder's guild that's small and sort of informal, And it's got a kind of a combination of some really successful people who've done this for 20 or 30 years combined with some young folks who are just getting involved. Uh, A good friend of mine, Tiffany Elder runs a black development group. It's actually a black real estate group, which includes housing builders, realtors. And it's great because it's like people who've done it for a long time engage with the 20 somethings who just have fire in their eyes. They're just like, I want to build the city tell me what to do, tell me what to do, tell me what to do. They're like, you can see that people are are going places. So that needs to be sort of cultivated. And uh, a lot of that, obviously, is regulatory. Like, if you can't build, you're not going to pretend you're a builder for very long, right? You're going to go teach or do something else. Um, And then, so the first thing you know, to do when you find yourself in a hole is to stop digging. Uh, But beyond that, um, I do think that there's there's a, a... a boom coming in that once you can get past these kind of silly fights of whether you have a right to build housing or not, only then do you have this, you create this space where we can actually start talking about the building beautiful housing and beautiful projects and so forth. And it's truly amazing because we look at our most progressive cities, which correlate with the sort of worst zoning and restrictive ability to do anything. And a lot of them have really bad architecture. I mean, especially over the last 50 years, some of the worst architecture is in California. And, and, you know, I ask people around Durham, like, what's the last project that inspired you? And people ponder forever. And then they're like, well, American Tobacco Campus, which was a major adaptive reuse of a tobacco factory. And it's like, that was 20 years ago. I mean, it's crazy. And a creative class that's booming, um, that we're not building anything that's inspiring in a quarter century is just not acceptable. And so, I, I, again, really, people won't believe this, but a huge chunk of it is that people are so exhausting having arguments over silly things that there's only so many hours in a day and you can't, if, if you waste time there, you have less time to design, design beauty. And so we're getting there, but um, the right uh, you know, reform is a prerequisite. There's no question about that.
0: Yeah, absolutely. You're so right about the architecture issue. It's pretty unfortunate, pretty brutal out there.
1: I call it the California effect because it, it's yeah. when it gets so tight when there there's such a low day on market and uh, there's no elasticity. Um, the builders, whether they're kind of mean or not, effectively are saying, "I'm, I'm a, whatever I build, you're going to buy." Like, why why do I why would I try to do something better because The parking so tight, I'm gonna build something, you're gonna buy it. And so there is something to be said for finding equilibrium because and and it's interesting because a lot of the anti-housing groups will complain sincerely or not about bad architecture, but their advocacy to prevent elasticity and prevent supply absolutely has a downward pressure on quality of architecture. No doubt about it. All you have to do is look at the kind of housing that's been built in California. Who led this movement for the last fifty years, and nearly all of the housing that's been built uh, is ugly, sprawl.
0: Yeah, yeah, and even whether or not you're going to get like a design architect involved on a project that can effectively build a nice building, or if it's just more of a copy paste approach, yeah. Um, yeah. which is unfortunate. It'd be great if that would change one day.
1: Okay, yeah, it, come, it comes with the rights, but I think it's. Yeah. it's-
0: um, so I think we'll leave it there. Aaron, thank you so much. Is there anything else on SCAD that you'd like to share? Um, that obviously sounds like comes to a vote pretty quickly, 10 days from the day of this recording, which is pretty exciting. Are, are you feeling confident?
1: Yeah, it's been a long haul. I mean, it's been 18 months of really detailed work and great uh, engagements and a great team to work with. And I'm excited for my city because we We've got a lot of needs here, but a lot of willingness to roll up our sleeves and, and uh, take it on, and that's exciting because I think most cities take the easy route out, and that's how we get into the mess that we're into. So, um, excited.
0: Well, I'll be I'll be rooting for you guys in Durham on on the twenty first of August, and hopefully uh, that passes through and is transformative for the city. Before we finish today, it is time for The Down Zone, which is the part of the show where we can share anything that we have been listening to, reading, watching, or just anything that we have been up to these days. So Aaron, I'm going to put you on the spot. What do you have for The Down Zone today?
1: Sure. So I was reading a book by Mark Mitchell that was recommended to me by uh, uh, Jeff Graham and uh, brother Vince Graham, who were de- developed uh, I Development Down in, in Charleston. Uh, Vince is uh, related to Southern urbanism. was talking about a group called Front Porch Republic, which is a kind of a small blog that talks about the need to reestablish the small and incremental strong towns would to be all about them and encourage uh, you and Chuck to engage with them. And it basically says like, you know, big, big things generally are bad. It's like big corporations are bad, the government's bad, and we need to sort of establish these small civic bonds, whether they're, you know, through neighborhoods or churches or builders' guilds or whatever, to, to kind of rebuild America. And uh, anyway, so Mark Mitchell wrote this great book called Plutocratic Socialism, and he's a political, he's a professor, and he's the, actually the head of Front the uh, Republic but it kind of talks about the small narrow band that's very active in undermining housing housing reform in, in every city. Well, it's not about housing reform specifically. It talks about the plutocratic group, which tends to be the wealthy homeowner that has kind of ruled housing politics for fifty years, combined now with an underclass of typically anti-capitalist um, uh, activist group that wants to stop development because it makes money or uh, you know delays the revolution or whatever it might be and he talks about how those groups are really kind of on paper at odds with each other but they actually partner on these issues because they need each other for relevancy and the historical uh, background of why that happened and how they're kind of the the leading problem in most of these cities that relationship was outlined in this book so it's a little wonky but I'm great and I do recommend it
0: yeah, that sounds like it's definitely worth a good read. I wasn't aware there's was a book on it, um, but I have noticed in many cities that, that uh, it's like strange bedfellows <laughs> have partnered up. Yeah. So um, I was just going to share that I recently saw uh, the Oppenheimer movie. Have you seen this, Aaron?
1: I saw it in
0: London with my kids actually it's great. Oh that's great. Yeah, best 3 hours I've ever spent. <laughs> I don't it didn't really feel like 3 hours um, and it, I feel like it went through, went by pretty quickly, but I I actually didn't I didn't know a lot about Oppenheimer before the movie, so now I'm interested to kind of read a little bit about the background of of this person and I'd like to understand how much of it was uh, how much of the story was kind of made up for uh, the purpose of creating a movie and in the historical context. Um, I also didn't know that this this movie creator, um, Christopher Nolan, doesn't use CGI, which I, I realized, or I read about that after I watched the movie. And so now I want to go back and appreciate all those visuals. Um right. It's just, I, I wish I would have known that before, but I guess yeah. I'm out of the loop on that producer.
1: <laughs> yeah, no, I don't know either, but it makes you feel better.
0: Oh, well, there you go. So now you have to go go watch it again. Um, but yeah, it's they they put everything on film, apparently, and use kind of old school uh, ways of developing special effects visually, which is pretty, pretty cool.
1: Pretty much, given that, yeah. Uh, they're, they're
0: duplicating a uh, nuclear bomb, right? Oh, <laughs> Which is a you know it, they're they're trying to make something that seems like so large and intense um, without using CGI is pretty impressive. And just the the special effects kind of towards the beginning of the movie when he's daydreaming, um, I, I want to learn more about how that was all created, if not for CGI
1: something to be said for authenticity.
0: I love it. Yeah, it's it's really, really fantastic. Well, thank you, Aaron. So glad you were able to join me. Come on anytime if you have an article that you'd like to share, or if you have friends that have articles they want to talk about, it would be great to to bring you guys on in the, in the Durham South.
1: Yeah, for sure. And of course, all the writers we have at Southern Urbanism, many of which you know, because there's a big overlap with it. Development Alliance NTBA, and CMU, but flip through that magazine because pretty much any of them are available to you and would love to talk with you as well.
0: Yeah, that would be great. All right. Well, thanks, Aaron. And thanks, everybody, for listening to another episode of UpZoned. Keep doing what you can to build a strong town. Thanks, Aaron. Thank you.